Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, I just want to check you can hear me all right. So I'm sort of practicing at this moment, so maybe I'll speak a little bit louder. But nobody's looking horrified, so I'm assuming you can hear me. Uh, my name is Andrew Carwood, and I'm the director of music here at St Paul's Cathedral. Working with the clergy and the musicians for the liturgies which take place in this great building. On behalf of the chapter and the whole community here at St Paul's, my first happy task is to welcome you. It's great to see so many of you here. St Paul's is a building for the people uh, and it's quite nice when it's silent, but it's even better when it's got some noise in it. And by noise, I don't necessarily mean the clutter of footsteps or the loud speaking of voices but the silent prayer and thoughts of people who are concentrating. And you are together with us for this important talk about music and faith this evening, uh, and I'm hoping that we hear lots of thoughts. I'd also like to thank Peter Holder, our sub-organist, who's just played a beautiful piece of Bach, Erbarm dich mein Gott, to start the proceedings. Sound and silence are vital parts of our existence. Sounds can make us happy or they can make us sad. They can frighten us or they can draw us towards something. Music is a particularly organized set of sounds and that too has a powerful impact on us. There are many references in the Bible to music. Miriam dances before the Lord and plays upon a timbrel when the Israelites cross the Red Sea. The Psalms are designed for singing and they refer to the playing of instruments of trumpets and harps. But in Psalm 137, there is a very particular and rather unpleasant mention of the deep sorrow that the Israelites had when they sat down and wept by the waters of Babylon. They hanged their harps on the trees because they could not bear to make music anymore. And when their captors taunted them, the best joke they could come up with was to ask them to sing one of the songs of Zion. And of course, when Christ broke bread with his disciples before his crucifixion, they all sang a hymn together, first of all. For us in the modern world, we make music, we sing, at various different times. We sing with a smile on our faces at weddings, and when we hear sad songs at funerals, we cry. Adverts, television, films, all rely on the power of music to reinforce their drama or their message. And the church, and we as individuals responding to faith, is no different. It can empower us and help us. I wonder if you remember the old Heineken beer advert. Heineken, it goes, refreshes the parts other beers cannot reach. Quite a claim, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but I do think it's the perfect statement with a few tweaks for music and faith. Perhaps we need to change some words. I would suggest music refreshes the parts 
that words cannot reach would be a good reworking. <clears throat> the simple fact is that when dealing with complex ideas of faith, belief, religious truth, theology indeed, worship, prayer, we need all the help that we can get. And music, like all art forms, can help to release us from the confines of our earthbound minds to take us to another place, a place of instinct, a place where our thoughts are given expression through sounds which touch both our emotions and our intellect, and where we have the freedom to fly. I'm going to introduce our speaker in a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of our events before, let me just explain a couple of practicalities. The first half of the evening will be a mixture of Timothy and me talking about faith and music, mostly Timothy, I hasten to add. I'm only going to chip in on the odd occasion. And there will also be some music as well. I've already introduced you to Peter, and I'd also to introduce you to Cecilia Osmond and Rebecca Utram, who are singing for us this evening. After Timothy has finished speaking, there will be plenty of time to ask questions, and I do encourage you to ask questions. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't think that your question is redundant right, or obvious. Please do feel free to come forward with them. If you have a question about anything we've said, please write it on the back of your program and hold it up, and the Wandsman will come and collect them from you. We'll collect questions until about 7.40, and if you could keep them brief and legible, that would be much appreciated. We're also in the modern age, absolutely up to date, and we are taking questions via Twitter. And if you want to do that with your mobile phone, you need to use the hashtag MusicFaith. One word, MusicFaith. So if you want to ask a question that way, type it into your mobile phone, type in the question, press send, and we will find it. Shortly before 8 o'clock, I will stop the questions and discussion, and Timothy will have a few final remarks. Uh, and then he's very kindly agreed to sign some copies of his books. And there is a stall just over here on my left hand. But to the main business of the evening, it is my huge pleasure, for a number of reasons, not least because I have been an admirer of this man for so many years, to introduce to you Timothy Radcliffe, who is a Dominican friar and one of the best-loved spiritual teachers of our time. He was master of the worldwide Dominican order, the Order of Preachers, from 1992 until 2001, and he is the only member of the English province to have held that office since the order's foundation in 1216. He has since returned to being a member of the Dominican community in Oxford. He has taught theology at Oxford University, been involved in ministry to people with AIDS, traveled and taught widely in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and published numerous best-selling books about Christianity and the spiritual life. The demand for him to speak, preach, lecture, and lead retreats all over the world means that he is, in fact, living the life of a wandering friar. And in the course of preparing this event, uh, I know Elizabeth Foy has had emails from him from airports all over the world. Most recently, 
Pope Francis has named Timothy a consultor for the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace. We are delighted and honoured that he's here to explore what music has to say about faith with us tonight. And could I ask you to welcome him to the podium now? Good evening. A friend of mine, a bishop, asked me to preach at the 25th anniversary of his Episcopal ordination. And he said to me, Timothy, I'd like you to tell us what it means to be a good bishop. And I said to my brethren, how can I do this? I've never been a bishop. And one of the brethren said, don't worry, Timothy. Ignorance has never stopped you speaking in the past. <laughs> I can tell you it almost did this time. When uh, Elizabeth and Andrew invited me to come and speak to you about music and faith, I vigorously resisted. I know little about music. I rarely listen to it. The walls of Blackfriars are too thin. But there was no escaping their pincer movement. The only qualification that I have is that I belong to a community which sings three or four times a day, often in Gregorian chant. Singing is our life. Sir James Macmillan, just knighted, the composer, is a lay Dominican. He's a member of our order. He said his studies of Gregorian chant were the singularly most valuable thing I have ever done in music. It lays the bedrock for so much in melodic writing, in consideration of the building blocks of polyphonic complexity and in the search for spiritual serenity. Singing shapes our communal life as brethren. The word for breath in Hebrew, ruach, also means spirit. So when we sing, we breathe together alternately breathing in and breathing out. Singing shapes the day and the year. You know within seconds whether it's Advent or Lent, whether it's Pentecost or Christmas. And when a brother is dying, we gather together around the bed to sing the Salve Regina. We see them off with the song. It's true, occasionally a brother opens a rather weary eye on the deathbed and says, isn't this a bit premature? <laughs> Osmond Bluri was a great medieval philosopher, but he became afflicted with cancer when he was in his 50s. On Easter morning a few years ago, we gathered around his bed and we sang 
the Regina Chaley, we celebrated the Eucharist. And afterwards, I went down to get some champagne, which had been cooling in the fridge. And I said to him, Oswald, wasn't the Regina Chaley beautiful? And he replied, yes, I suppose I ought to have died during it. And I said, you've absolutely no sense of timing. And he replied, but I was hanging on for the champagne. So let's listen to the Regina Chaley. This is the Easter song to Mary. Queen of heaven, rejoice. For he who thou didst merit to bear has risen as he said. say that's rather more beautiful, beautifully sung than we do it. So in the face of death we sing. When my father was dying I had to fly back from Jerusalem and I found him in hospital and I said, Pa, is there anything that I can do? And he said, bring me my Walkman. I want to listen to Mozart's Requiem and Haydn's seven last words. So he faced his death with music. Last month there was the world premiere of Between Worlds, an opera by Tansy Davis about 9-11. Some people were a bit shocked that there should be an opera about such a horrible event. But maybe it's the only way to endure its brutality. The librettist Nicholas Drake said, putting the transforming power of music at the heart of the drama, we thought might allow us to weigh the tragedy of what happened on 9-11 and discover some kind of light in that darkness.
He said music even seems to have played a role in helping people on that day. A security guard sang hymns to those descending the stairs. But for some relatives lost for words as they spoke to loved ones on the phone, sang songs. In January this, this year, I spent uh, some time in Iraq and in the camps in Kurdistan where there are hundreds of thousands of refugees. Sometimes the only sound of hope was the haunting singing of my Iraqi sisters. And in the middle of Baghdad, that war-torn city, we sang. How can music give us hope in the face of sorrow and even death? First of all, by enabling one to acknowledge what one's living through and then move on. The psalms that we sing three times a day are filled with passion, anger, disappointment, rage, resentment. And that raw emotion is voiced in word and song. And then we can move onwards. Francis Bufford had a terrible row with his wife. Finally, he fled the house and he went to a cafe to have a coffee by himself, utterly miserable, at six o'clock in the morning. And then the waiter put on the adagio of Mozart's clarinet concerto. And as he listened, his experience was transformed. He wrote, the music sounds as if it comes from a world where sorrow is perfectly ordinary, but there is still more to be said. Everything you fear is true, and yet, everything that you've ever done wrong, you have really done wrong, and yet, and yet, shut up and listen, and let yourself count for just a little bit on a calm that you do not have to make for yourself because it's there freely offered so let's listen to a song by Benjamin Britten the Corpus Christi Carol which acknowledges the sorrow the falcon has borne my mate away
How does music carry us towards that calm? Here my complete ignorance of musical theory will become nakedly obvious. But the philosopher Roger Scruton makes some observations which ring true to me. Music moves towards closure, or at least half closure. It offers, he writes, the completed gesture, the gesture that completes itself out of its own inner content, which has no purpose but itself, and yet which accomplishes that purpose. For many people, this is the central mystery and the most important reward of serious music, that it shows human action drawing itself to a close. And what is that close? Perhaps it is our Sabbath rest. Peter Abelard wrote in the 12th century, where Sabbath unto Sabbath succeeds eternally, the joy that has no ending of souls in holiday. 
In Ian McEwan's novel Saturday, the hero drops into a jazz club to listen to his son playing. No longer tired, Henry comes away from the wall where he's been leaning and walks into the middle of the dark auditorium towards the great engine of sound. He lets it engulf him. There are these rare moments when musicians together touch something sweeter than they've ever found before in rehearsal or performance, beyond the merely collaborative or the technically proficient, when their expression becomes as easy and graceful as friendship or love. This is when they give us a glimpse of what we might be, of our best selves, of an impossible world in which you give everything you have to others, but lose nothing of yourself. Out in the real world, there exist detailed plans, visionary projects for peaceable realms, all conflicts resolved, happiness for everyone, forever, mirages for which people die and kill, Christ's kingdom on earth, the workers' paradise, the ideal Islamic state. But he says only in music and only on rare occasions does the curtain actually lift of this dream of community and it's tantalizingly conjured before fading away with the last notes. In music we glimpse that peace for which we are made, in which all hatred and rivalry are transcended and we are one, even in our rather clumsy singing at Blackfriars, just sometimes we belong to each other in ways that are a first fruit of the kingdom. In singing we taste the end of the journey of all our journeys. On the last day of the liturgical year we have a lovely reading from St. Augustine who I love. He says, so now let us sing not to delight our leisure but to ease our toil in the way that travelers are in the habit of singing sing but keep on walking sing and walk my second example is from the film Shawshank Redemption made in 1994 by Frank Darabont and it tells us about Andy Andy is an American banker who's been wrongly imprisoned because he was convicted of murdering his wife. And he becomes a trusted inmate. And one day, he takes over control of the prison tower and he plays extracts from Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. And all the prisoners are transported hearing this incomprehensible Italian aria, a hint of the freedom, the peace for which they long. One of Andy's friends, Red, says, I've no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. 
Some things are best left unsaid. I'd like to think that they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache after it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anyone in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapping into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest moment, everyone in Shawshank Prison felt free. Music breaks down the walls as the Israelites blew on their trumpets and the walls of Jericho fell. So let's listen to that aria ourselves. Sul aria che suave zephyrito. On the breeze, what a gentle little zephyr. Thank you. 
Roger Scruton also suggests that music reconciles freedom and necessity. He writes, in music we find actions that are both necessary and free. Music is a perceived resolution of the conflict between freedom and necessity made available in a space of its own. That sounds absolutely right to me. Every note is freely chosen by the composer, but somehow it seems right, inevitable. You see, I could never have anticipated that note, but of course, it's the one that has to be. I have a vague intuition that this reconciliation of freedom and necessity says something very profound about how God works in our lives. I'm not sure how, and I hope that you will help me to understand. After the death of Christ, two of the disciples run away to Emmaus. Jesus has failed. It's a fiasco. And on the way, they meet a stranger whom they do not recognize at first as Jesus. And he explains how it was necessary that the Son of Man should suffer and die. It had to happen. But their eyes are opened when he repeats the gesture of the Last Supper and breaks the bread and offers it to them. And that is a gesture of dizzy freedom because his deepest freedom is to give his life away. This is what he must do. And we have to give our lives away freely. And maybe music helps us to glimpse the relationship between that necessity and that freedom. You see, people often speak as if one chooses one's faith, as one chooses one's political party or one's car. But religion isn't chosen. It's the experience of being chosen, summoned. St. Paul didn't choose Christianity. I think it sounds a rather interesting religion. He surrenders himself to the Lord who's chosen him. And we may surrender, or we may withhold our consent. But believers are not shoppers in the supermarket of belief. When we encounter the divine, there's a sort of compulsion. This is what I must do. This is who I must be. But it's a necessity that sets us free. We surrender to the gravity of God's love as we surrender to the music when we dance. As T.S. Eliot said, we are the music while the music lasts. If we don't accept, we remain wallflowers on the dance of the universe. 
and a little polemical note that James Macmillan would fully agree with, music will only invite us to this surrender if it's pull, if it's beautiful. And sometimes this will mean that it's difficult, it's demanding, it demands discipline. Too much music, at least in Catholic parishes, as I know from painful experience, is just too trivial to peel back the veil of transcendence. A story is told of a terrifying Archbishop of Birmingham, George Patrick Dwyer, who ruled when I was a young friar. He was sent one day to a parish for confirmation and the liturgical commission of the parish had prepared a particularly dreadful selection of awful songs like Break Bread Together on Our Knees. And as the liturgy progressed, the Archbishop looked grimmer and grimmer until finally he stood up and he said, enough of these trivial ditties. He said, let's sing some real music. Turn to page 89. And at the end of the mass, the parish priest got up to thank everybody for their preparation. And he said, I have to apologize for the rude behavior of the archbishop who rejected all your hard work. And everybody looked at the archbishop and he scowled and he rose to his feet and he said, thanks be to God, there's one priest in this diocese who've got a bit of courage. So let us have the courage to make music together, which is radiantly beautiful, even if it's difficult and it demands practices. Every congregation should be able to sing as beautifully as the choirs of those Welsh mining villages. I'd like to finish with a few brief words about birdsong. This might encounter music in the strict sense, but it was the first song of my youth. In the Shawshank Redemption, music is compared to the beautiful bird that flaps in our drab cage. I grew up near Ascot, where suburbia had just given way to countryside. Much of my young days were spent wandering around the woods and the fields, bathing in the songs and cries of birds. They sang, they shrieked warnings, they asserted their territorial rights. To be immersed in birdsong is to be reminded that we're part of that vast interconnected web of living things whom we do not own and whom we cannot control. They may live in our domesticated landscape, but we live in their world too. Mary Oliver in her poem Wild Geese wrote, whoever you are, 
no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination and calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Announcing your place in the family of things. And birdsong reminds us that our flourishing is inseparable from our fellow animals. As Pope Francis will remind us in his encyclical in a couple of days, I've had a peek, it's wonderful. <laughs> Charles Peggy said, if when we die we come before God alone, he will ask, and where are the others? Birdsong is filled with hope. Emily Dickinson wrote, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And the dawn chorus of blackbirds isn't just a squabble over territory. It's been suggested that they're rejoicing at surviving yet another night. We're still here. We've made it to another dawn. And if birds are indeed the descendants of dinosaurs, they're the great survivors. When their relatives are wiped out 85 million years ago, some dare to become small and light and live. And so it's appropriate that the Holy Spirit should be represented as a bird, the spirit which is the hope of God which hovered over the original chaos and hatched a universe. A dove which brought Noah the olive branch. Even God is imagined as a bird under whose wings we find safety. Guard me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. One of my Vietnamese brethren was preaching in Ho Chi Minh City on the feast of Pentecost and he had the bright idea that at a certain point he would make a sign and the sacristan would release a pigeon. He made the sign. Nothing happened and a voice was heard shouting from the ceiling, Father, Father, the cat has eaten the Holy Spirit. Many composers have been influenced by birdsong, Messiaen above all. The Lark Ascending by Vaughan Williams is a national favourite. But let's finish with a song, again by Benjamin Britten, called Birds, which recalls the apocryphal stories about the baby Jesus making birds, which he sets free. No. 
Thank you very much, Timothy, and to Rebecca and Cecilia and Peter uh, for that beautiful performing. Plenty of things to think about there. This is your moment to be brave and to do what I said at the beginning, music replaces, to try and articulate any questions or thoughts that you might have, and they will magically appear on this screen in front of me, and I have some here already, which we might consider. But I'm going to um, start our discussion by getting Timothy and I to think a little bit about how music enhances our spiritual life, because we are both part of a singing tradition, uh, you in the Friary uh, in Oxford and me here at St Paul's. We have a rather particularly, um, well, I suppose elaborate um, form of worship here at St Paul's with our daily call evensong and, of course, the prayer life which goes on around that which is spoken. And you have a rather more simpler um, music of existence with the Gregorian chant. We use Gregorian chant here as well. But for me, it's very important that it allows me to articulate something, as I said earlier on, which I can't say. Not a great point for a discussion, I realise. Um, but through the music, through music in the liturgy, through responding to what we hear, uh, read in the Bible, or preached in the pulpit, I find music gives an added dimension. Is this something that you've discovered in your life, that an, an enhancement, a growing? I live within the the rhythm of the liturgical year. Every year is a journey, beginning in Advent and culminating in a way in Pentecost and then going into uh, the glorious time of ordinary time. Ordinary time sounds boring, but it's wonderful because it's the time of greenery. It is the green time. Uh, and I think it would be unimaginable to, to make that passage without music. Pope Benedict said that to sing with the universe is to walk in the steps of the Logos, the Lord. And Christianity is a way. The first name of Christianity is the way. You walk it. And certainly I found that it's the singing as much as anything that helps me to glimpse the music. Singing is very like theology. Theology also brings you to the limits of what you can say. Theology brings you to where language breaks down. And perhaps it's at that moment that you need the music. That's, I love that. I love that statement. I'm reminded of the story um, of Guido D'Arezzo, who is the first uh, guy who uh, invented the musical staff, you know, the lines on which we write music. Until that point, it was an entirely oral tradition. So I would have come to you and you would have said, this is how we sing the Regina Chaley, and you would have sung it to me and I would have sung it to you. And he said, no, no, not like that. Do it like this. And it was an oral tradition. But Guido came up with this wonderful idea that if you drew a line, you could make a mark on the line. And that was an indication of pitch because you could put another line underneath it and put another mark on that line and it was lower than the other one. Brilliant. And this led to the staff and this led to composition. But Guido went to Rome, he went from Arezzo to Rome, in order to display this new method of singing to the priests in Rome. And there was a very fierce debate, because they said this is not the right way to do it, because the chant 
the singing of God must be from the heart. And that's where we get our phrase, to, to learn something by heart. We don't learn by heart. We learn by head. We learn by memory. But we don't say that. We talk about learning things off by heart because they disapproved of the singing from notation because it wasn't spiritual enough. It was written down, it existed. Uh, and I think that's a very important part of music, that it has to be of the deity and of, the, of another world sometimes. Uh, it, it has to be sung with understanding in a different way. Is there, is there any music... I'm interested that all of the music we've listened to tonight has been quite slow. Is there any music you find unhelpful to spiritual life? No. Well, I mean, I think there is this, this sort of, uh, sort of more bacchic, uh, disorderly music, but most music uh, can be healing if you listen. I mean, this morning, when I was getting myself ready to come down, I actually listened to Radiohead. Uh, rainbows, beautiful bit of music, uh, 15 steps. So I think that there's all sorts of music um, that helps you on the way, but you discern what you need at that moment. It wouldn't have helped Francis Spufford, I suspect, at six o'clock in the morning to have listened to Radiohead. What he needed was the particular qualities, qualities of, of Mozart then. Hmm. Well, looking at Mozart, we've got a question in here on Mozart, which says, do you have any thoughts on Mozart being called the healing composer? That's a quotation. Uh, Mozart being the healing composer. I have a particular view about Mozart, because I think he's one of the first people to humanize um, our views of uh, the deity. So, for example, uh, you, you heard um, Rebecca and Cecilia sing a beautiful duet from Figaro. There's a very um, lovely um, aria um, in there um, called Porgia Amor, uh, sung by the Countess. Beautiful love aria. It's very similar to some settings of the Arnus Dei, which he wrote in his masses. Uh, and there is this idea, I think, that Mozart humanizes the Lamb of God, that he becomes, it's something we can relate to, because we don't want a God which is so far up here that we can't relate to it, that it's, it's something which is of our own experience, of our own emotion. And I mean, because the, the Mozart must affect you, mm. because of the reason why you chose it, that duet. Though I'm rather irreverently reminded of Evelyn Wall's book, uh, vile bodies in which Mrs. Ape loves the song There Ain't No Flies on the Lamb of God. <laughs> That's, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Absolutely. That's there another subject. Rather interesting question yeah. I saw there the about joy. Uh, oh, yes, this one, the atheist one. Can you experience joy while listening to music that you know was written by an atheist? Yes, very much so, very much so. In my experience, most atheists are vigorously disbelieving in a God in whom I do not believe. Um, and I think that uh, when we're seeking to understand whence we come and where we're going, then you need the insights of everybody. And you need the joy of everybody. So I'm, I'm very happy to find myself lifted up, transported by the joy of an atheist composer. Because most of 
of belief is actually getting rid of wrong images of God. Because ultimately, we cannot have an image of God. And so often the people who help us purify our faith are atheists. I also think that the joy of every, every faith has its joy. And if you want to understand another religion, then you have to get a glimpse of its joy. I was once walking across Jerusalem in the middle of the night and there was a door half opened and I saw the Hasidim, the Orthodox rabbis, dancing. And when I saw their joy, I began to understand their faith. And in mosques, I think particularly, for example, in Cairo, in Egypt, where I've been and listened to the joy of, of Islam, particularly the joy of the Sufi mystics. When you hear their joy, you glimpse the one whom we all search. And I think that if our, if our faith, if our lives don't incarnate that joy, then we're wasting our time. I'm very interested you've just gone on to that because we've got a question here. Uh, can music assist in interfaith understanding? Because I, I haven't shared this with many people here yet, but I have a rather mad project um, that I am particularly bothered that in the discord which exists throughout the world um, that the various faiths involved are not coming together in a musical way. Now I realize that's a simplistic statement to make because um, there are many differences with our Islamic friends about what music is appropriate in a sacred space. But I feel this very important. We hear a lot about football being the international language. Football is not the international language, it's the international game. Music, I think, is the international language. Uh, doesn't mean to say we all understand it. My French is not bad, my Russian is absolutely non-existent. So I'm not going to understand everything about Islam through listening to music, but what you've just described, this the energy, the joy, the pervasive elements of music, I think are vital. And it was very moving when I was in Baghdad in January to, to experience this. Um, we had a, a gathering at one of our schools in Baghdad. 300 people came. I had to give up a rather long and boring lecture. But 80% of the people who came were Muslim. And at the beginning, we laughed together. You know, it's when we laugh together that you draw close. And then we went to a restaurant, some of us, and we sang together. And we played together. It's this dreadful seriousness that can suffocate that intuitive understanding of the other. So what, can we articulate what that says about God? About God's presence in a room? So, I mean, if, when we come together, is it, is it energy? Is it... It's difficult, isn't it? It's, uh, it's very hard to relate the two things together. I have an instinct that there is uh, an indefinable energy, an otherness, a, a bigger an awareness of the bigger things. Um, what I said in my introduction at the beginning is, is uh, what I was limping towards. 
this idea that music can free your emotions and your intellect to go somewhere else, which you can't dare to go. Uh, and heaven knows getting close to God is, is difficult, just, just through prayer. I think prayer can be very hard. And I, I have a feeling that music can do this. It's a freeing. I think one, and you know much more about this than I do, Andrew, one element is that music is ecstatic. You're transported outside yourself. You transcend your little individualism. Another element, I think, is that there is, after all, an ancient tradition which is endeared for most of Christianity, which says that the whole universe sings. If you read the, the, the Bible, the trees sing for joy, the valleys are decked with wheat, and they sing. And there's an old tradition which you found often in, the, in Egypt, particularly, I think, and in some of the Desert Fathers, which said that you have to, to learn to hear the song of the universe, which is its harmony. And the part of what we do when we sing is to, is to restore harmony between us. Mm, yeah, that's very good. And of course, it links into the, the, the movement of the spheres. So in the 17th century, it was described as a harmonious movement. And there's a question here um, about uh, jazz, which I'm quite excited by. It says, music connects deeply with the Holy Spirit. Um, it is expressive, passionate, emotional, and unpredictable, somewhat like jazz, which I like, actually, a lot, uh, that, that comment. Jazz, for those of you who are not so familiar, there's a large, um, huge tradition of improvisation in jazz. And it goes back to what I was saying about Guido and his method of notation. You don't write it all down. You have to have room for improvisation. Interestingly, our Eastern friends still improvise their chant. It's only the West which has written it down. Um, but when you've just talked about ecstasy, ecstatic music, where is, again, because the Holy Spirit is an impossible thing to pin down, isn't it? Do you think this is right? Is, is, the, is the improvisation, the coming together, the, 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 the difference? We were talking about the Trinity. We were just joking beforehand about who would deal with the question on the Trinity. It's always somebody asking a question on the Trinity. We're not sure who is going to do it. But jazz is a very good example, I think, of, of multiple strands coming together and becoming one. If, if I could just say a word about jazz, uh, you, probably many of you heard of Dave Brubeck. Um, and Dave Brubeck composed a wonderful jazz mass, uh, his Jazz Eucharist. And the Dominican University in Switzerland, Freiburg, we gave him an honorary doctorate. Uh, and I think it's one of the first times that certainly in Europe, jazz players received an honorary doctorate for his sacred music. Uh, and I think whoever put that thing about the, the relationship with the Holy Spirit is so spot on. Because the Holy Spirit is about losing control. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes, St. John says in chapter 3 of his Gospel, which is a great theme for Pope Francis. This is his favorite text of Scripture. You don't know where the Spirit comes from and you do not know where it will go. And I think it's that which means that you have to lose control. The Spirit says lose control. 
And we live in a culture which is extremely controlling. Charles Taylor has talked about the culture of control. And it's infected our churches too. Our Christianity has been infected by this desire to control everything. But the Spirit asks us to dare let go, to improvise, and to see, see where it takes us, to have a riff. Absolutely. And um, we, we had, I had a little um, problem here. We did um, a wonderful piece by Jonathan Harvey, uh, one Pentecost, called Come Holy Ghost, which uses improvisation as part of it. And it's very confused and it's quite difficult. And uh, a gentleman um, came to complain. Sadly, I'd left the cathedral by that stage, so the presenter had to deal with his irate shouting about how awful the music was. But it's a similar piece. It lives in the confusion. It, it allows the confusion to exist and it allows you to lose yourself. Um, a couple of questions here. Can you benefit spiritually from music you don't like? Quite like that. Can you benefit spiritually from music you don't like? And I want to enlarge on it in a second. Well, we... perhaps I could say something, Andrew, while you think of something more intelligent to say. <laughs> uh, I think only if you, if you learn to like it. One of the disciplines of living in a religious community is that you have to learn to love your brothers and your sisters and you haven't chosen them and sometimes you might think that you might not want to have chosen them but there they are you have to acquire the imagination to discern how they are in fact lovable and I think in a similar way any music that is great, uh, it's an invitation not just to endure it, but to discover how it is beautiful, its unrevealed beauty. My father loved music. He knew a hundred times more about it than I did. And every time I went to visit, he'd say, I will record you some music for your car. What would you like? And I'd say, well, I'd like some Mozart, and I'd like some Haydn, and I'd like some Bach. And he'd say, I'll do that. But every time, he used to record Shostakovich and Bartok. And it was terrible for my driving. Never try to drive listening to Bartok. You go all over the place. <laughs> but I think I had to say that my father's music was an invitation for me to learn its beauty. I don't think you can learn from it as long as you don't like it, but you can learn to love it. I agree with that. And I'd like to open this out a little bit more as well to talk about discord. So we, we, we've heard actually a lot of concordant music this evening, music which sounds where the notes fit very well together. Even Benjamin Britten has been quite well behaved in his two pieces. The, the discords are very gentle, very, very touching. Um, but discord and the use of discord, especially I would suggest since the Second World War, when the world went through such a cataclysmic uh, phase that it's not really possible for art to be ignorant of that, produced quite a lot of music which is very challenging. So, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, there are um, pieces of modern music now, and sometimes people go to concerts with modern music in it, and they get quite frightened they know they're going to get something which is going to challenge them and which might be uncomfortable. So um, the Threnody by Pinderetsky. 
I would suggest, which actually has nothing to do uh, with what people think it's got to do with. People think it expresses the pain of the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima. It's that terrifying, deeply, deeply uncomfortable piece of music. In fact, that was not the composer's intention at all. It is what, how people have reacted to it. And it's not, I could not say it's a favorite piece of mine. I, can't, I couldn't mm -hmm. say I'd like it, but I admire it hugely. And I think there is a very um, close relationship to coming face to face with all the Holy Spirit we've talked about. It isn't comfortable. And art and music mustn't just be comfortable. Sometimes you have to work very hard to make friends with art. Sometimes you have to work very hard to make friends with the Holy Spirit as well because you cannot discern what it is. And I think it's the same process. The understanding, the living with, the experiencing, the articulating. I think is, is part of that. And, and could one say perhaps that just as God's ultimate will is for the harmony of the universe to bring all things into one, Paul says in Ephesians, but often we get there by discord. I mean, Jesus is a disruptive person. He says, I have not come to bring peace but the sword. And he quarrels with people and he stirs things up and he, he throws out the, the money changers from the temple. Perhaps a sensitive word in St. Paul's at the moment. No, not at all. Oh, no, we embrace that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but perhaps the only way to any ultimate harmony passes through discord. No, I think it's, I think it's absolutely essential. And of course, the point about the discord is resolution. And that is ultimately what you see in the journey of Christ. Um, a relatively, a relatively difficult, but I would say relatively peaceful birth, immediately thrown into discord, immediately thrown into confusion by the flight into Egypt. Christ's ministry on earth, the horror of Passion Tide and those events, and then moving through to the resurrection, is discord into concord. And that is what music is about, conflict and resolution. So music can allow us to experience that in microcosm. Looking at another question here, um, I'm going to come to that one later. It says, um, I think this goes back to something you were saying, does the spiritual power of music come perhaps from the absence of dogma created from religious language? Now that's quite a tricky one, because of course we're often singing religious words. Um, and uh, so sometimes... Um, I think what it does is, is, is turn the words a little bit uh, to mean that it's not quite so um, fixed. Our reactions might not be so fixed, but of course a lot of music can be wordless. Orchestral music, instrumental music, uh, Mahler's Resurrection Symphony can express great truths which, are, which uh, don't use any words. Um, so I think uh, there is an absence of dogma but I don't think it's caused from the change of words. I think it's caused from the change of uh, the performance, the environment. It frees you. It goes back to this idea of freeing you to experience other things. That's, for me, where the dogma goes. Uh, it's a very interesting question. And it's sometimes said that um, today many people will resist, if you want a moral vision, which is of the good, and they will resist dogma which is about the true but people will accept the authority of the beautiful and I think that that's absolutely right the beauty has 
its own authority. Von Balthasar, 20th century theologian, talked of the intrinsic authority of beauty. So perhaps when we resist dogma and we resist a moral vision because we fear it's moralistic, then music and art has its own proper authority. I hope I can stand up though for a moment for dogma. Because I think true dogma is not dogmatic. True dogma is about moving you to glimpse the mystery which is beyond words. The great dogmas of the Christian faith, the divinity of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the, the Trinity, don't close discussion. They don't close down the mind. They don't close down the spirit. They provoke you to go further. They keep open the mystery. And I'm sure many of you are shaking your heads in disagreement because I think our society has a dogmatic prejudice against dogma. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, all human beings have dogmas. The only difference is between those who know that they've got them and those that don't. But I think the difference is between dogmas which are ultimately suppress thought, which suffocate creativity, and I think dogmas which release the human spirit in its exploration. Uh, and it's my deep belief that uh, the great Christian dogmas do this. I gotta stand up for it, you know. We should do a dogma, we should do a dogma evening. We could have a whole, whole evening on that. Um, and we, I think we've got time for one more question before I invite Timothy to um, make some closing remarks. And there's a couple here I want to pin together. One of which is, it's, well, yeah, I'll read it to you. If music is so life-enhancing, what does that say about God's relationship with the tone deaf? And the reason why I brought that in is because there's one element of music which we haven't discussed yet, which is silence. Because silence is as important as the music. So I'll give you a little example, a little flippant example. We all hate the moment when we go to a concert and there is a wonderful performance and the atmosphere is absolutely perfect and you're on the edge of your seat and somebody starts clapping before the last chord is finished because you want the silence and how wonderful it is when you go to a wonderful symphony orchestra concert or a choral concert and or even in a service because it's much easier for us to do it in services because we don't have any applause and you can hold the silence in the building similarly I'm sure my colleagues would agree the rests in music are as important as the notes themselves. Um, so I was interested in that comment and then this business about the tone deaf because um, God's relationship, as far as I'm concerned, is with everyone and is all embracing. And I can't think of anything else to say about that. But um, I think silence, existing in silence, which is something you've probably done more than I have, you're probably required to do that. Um, is important. Silence is vital. There's a, a nice quote from Roger Scruton that I, I cut out because the, I was going on too much. The most eloquent parts of the classical sonata movement 
are often the parts when nothing can be heard. When, for however brief a moment, we hear through the music to the silence behind. Fantastic. And certainly in our monastic singing, that's extremely important. For one thing, we begin with silence. We have normally, most of us, half an hour of silence before we have a note. Because it's by being silent beforehand that you're able to hear the silence in the music. One of my young brothers, Dominicans, called Dominic White, is a composer. In fact, many of my young brethren are composers. And he always begins every rehearsal by getting everybody to be quiet and say nothing and be silent for a quarter of an hour. I don't know whether, Andrew, you'd like to introduce this into St. Paul's. You might not be very popular, but I think it does actually remind one of the of the end of the journey. Uh, in Ignatius of Antioch says that Jesus is the word that springs forth from the silence of the Father. I think silence is very important. It works incredibly well in this building. People think it doesn't. It's in partly because you can hear noise outside. It makes the silence even more interesting. But I think it's absolutely vital. And I, and I sort of rather skipped away um, the business of the tone deaf. Tone deaf, I don't actually believe in tone deafness. Well, I do in adults. I believe in tone deaf adults. I don't believe in tone deaf children. Um, I, don't, I don't think, it's a memory, it's a memory thing. But music, the, the ability to be moved by music as a listener, as an auditor, as the Americans like to say, wonderfully, um, doesn't depend on being a practicing musician. Doesn't matter whether you're tone deaf. It's it's beyond that. I think it's beyond that. So, and if you want the best example of that, go to a football match. Nobody's tone deaf at a football match, ever. Timothy, can I invite you to say some final remarks to us, um, just to bring this evening to a close? I'd like to share a final thought with you that really only occurred to me. I think I would have given you a different talk if it struck me earlier on. I think one reason that music and Christianity chime together is because they're both soulful and bodily. They're deeply bodily and deeply abstract. I came across a British rapper the other day a hip-hop artist called Speech de Bell and her lyric spinning and it's gloriously physical. This is the S for my lisp, this is for my beating heart in my chest on the life, yes. And Speech de Bell says that she has to move when she composes because music is the most bodily thing that you can imagine. Anne Lamont wrote, music is as physical as it gets. Your essential rhythm is your heartbeat. Your essential sound, the breath. We are walking temples of noise. 
And I, I read a report a couple of days ago, a study from Oxford suggesting the compositions which match the rhythm of the body get rid of blood pressure problems. I must try them. As I said, the Hebrew word for breath also means spirit, ruach. And music is as spiritual, as abstract, as intangible as you get. Like Christianity, it's the two. You see, Christianity is a deeply bodily religion. Here in St. Paul's, regularly is celebrated the Eucharist, the gift of Christ's body. Our hope is for the resurrection of the body. And the whole history of Christianity is a struggle against dualism, the separation of body and spirit. You had Gnosticism in the second century, and Manichaeism in the fourth century, Albigensianism in the thirteenth century, Cartesianism in the 17th century and today we live in a deeply dualist society. Much of contemporary culture is ambiguous about the body. There's the cult of the body beautiful. I no longer dare take off my clothes on a beach and to swim for fear it would arouse waves of disgust and ridicule. But Mary Mitchley, the philosopher, has shown in her wonderful book, Science and Salvation, that there is a prevailing contempt of the body. In William Gibson's famous novel about the cyber world, The Necro-Neuromancer, he says the elite stance involved a relaxed contempt for the flesh. The body is meat. And it's one of the illnesses of our time, is a hatred of the body. Symptoms of which can be obesity and anorexia. So we need music to reconcile us with our bodies, to free us from this terrible dualism. For Christianity, the body is a gift, a place of grace. Aquinas said, nothing in the senses, nothing in the mind that is not first in the senses, and I hear the bell striking. All the sacraments bless our bodiliness, and music helps us to live with that, to dance. I think so many people are bored by Christianity because we don't dance. Archbishop, I can just get this in before it finishes striking 8 o'clock. Archbishop Dwyer was once, the terrifying Archbishop I mentioned, was once sitting beside the parish priest and this woman danced up with the offertory. And he turned and said to him, if she asks for your head on a platter, I'm going to give it. Thank you very much. There's, do you know, there's one little question here. I, it's not a question. It says, does history record which hymn Archbishop Dwyer chose? You don't know which one it was. I'm not... I've no idea, I'm afraid. It's lost in the mystery of time. Um, can I ask you um, to give 
a huge round of applause to thank Rebecca Utram, Cecilia Osman and Peter Holder for their wonderful playing and singing. I'd next like to thank you for being here and for your excellent questions and I'd like to encourage you to come back and see us again. These wonderful events are organised by Elizabeth Foy, who is just at the table over there. Do go and say hello if you want to. She's very friendly uh, and there is an entire uh, raft of events which happen here at St Paul's which you are welcome to be part of. Um, do One of which, actually, I should tell you about is on the 9th of July. Do you come back and hear Barbara Brown-Taylor talking about the spiritual treasures to be found in dark times. Uh, Timothy's books are available just over here, alongside him. Can I ask your final round of applause to be for him, to thank you for his stimulating words, uh, and please come back and see us again.